Hi, everybody. I'm super nerdily excited to be back with you talking about the book of Revelation again. I decided I'm going to do a little series on my podcast about the whole book of Revelation. I don't know exactly how long it'll be, but we're still in chapter one because chapter one is actually chock full of incredible amazingness. And I only touched on a few of it last time. So we're finishing up Revelation chapter one today. Okay, so because we are in such an incredible book and such an incredible, worshipful, amazing chapter, I would like to read the whole chapter. Don't worry, it's not that long. From the message paraphrase and then extrapolate some different things than we extrapolated last time. And the topic of this podcast is really all around who Jesus is and why John is choosing to reveal Jesus the way he is choosing to describe him in the chapter. Revelation 1. A revealing of Jesus, the Messiah. God gave it to make plain to his servants what is about to happen. He published and delivered it by an angel to his servant John. And John told everything he saw, God's word, the witness of Jesus Christ. How blessed the reader, how blessed the hearers and keepers of these oracle words, all the words written in this book. Time is just about up. I, John, am writing this to the seven churches in Asia province. All the best to you from the God who is, the God who was, and the God about to arrive, and from the seven spirits assembled before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, loyal witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of all earthly kings. Glory and strength to Christ who loves us, who blood washed our sins from our lives, who made us a kingdom, priests for his father forever. And yes, he's on his way, riding the clouds. He'll be seen by every eye. Those who mocked and killed him will see him. People from all nations and times will tear their clothes in lament. Oh yes. Then he says, the master declares, I am A to Z, the God who is, the God who was, and the God about to arrive. I'm the sovereign strong. I, John, with you all the way in the trial and the kingdom and the passion of patience in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of God's word, the witness of Jesus. It was Sunday and I was in the spirit praying. I heard a loud voice behind me, a trumpet clear and piercing. Write what you see into a book. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned and saw the voice. I saw a gold menorah with seven branches, and in the center, the Son of Man in a robe and a gold breastplate and hair a blizzard of white, eyes pouring fire blaze, both feet furnace fire bronze, his voice a roar, right hand holding the seven stars, his mouth a sharp biting sword, his face a blinding sun. I saw this and fainted dead at his feet. His right hand pulled me upright. His voice reassured me. Here's what Jesus says to John in the vision. Don't fear, I am first, I am last, I'm alive. I died, but I came to life, and my life is now forever. See these keys in my hand? They open and lock death's doors. They open and lock 
Hell's Gates. Now write down everything you see, things that are, things about to be. The seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven-branched gold menorah, do you want to know what's behind them? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The menorah's seven branches are the seven churches. Okay, so that's Revelation 1. As you can tell, it's packed. It's like chock full. And I won't be able to obviously unpack everything in there because that would take years and years and forever. But I want to unpack some different things than our last podcast episode. So number one, what really stands out to me today in this reading is the concept of Jesus as the preeminent Elohim. Jesus as the God who existed in the forever past and who exists now and who will always exist. Be present, be as he is, be never changing. In chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 8, as well as later in chapter 4, verse 8, we read this threefold clause, right? It's probably familiar if you're into the Bible because you may have read it before. It's the God who was, who is, and who is to come or God, who was, is, and is about to arrive, depending what translation you're reading. So in biblical scholar Sean McDonough's dissertation turned book, which is called Yahweh at Patmos, Revelation 1-4, in its Hellenistic and early Jewish setting, we see that this description of God is actually from Jewish meditation and reflection around the topic of the name. In the Hebrew scriptures, the name of God is a huge, profound, important topic. Now, God reveals his name as Yahweh, that's Hebrew for I am, in Exodus 3. He says to Moses, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you, right? So Yahweh becomes this identifying name of the Hebrew God in contrast to all the other lesser gods, right? In their faith. In particular, this description in Revelation 1, according to Sean McDonough, is an extraction from an expoundation on, I don't know if that expoundation is a word, but you guys know what I mean. On Exodus 3, where God reveals who he is, I am that I am. And scholars agree broadly that in Revelation 1, John is drawing on this burning bush story, right? He encounters God in the form of a burning bush that's not smoking and burning out. It's just like forever burning. And that's the story where Moses, you know, first learns God's name. So the other cool thing about the way John chose to write this, and John was a smart guy, and he knew how to speak and write Greek pretty thoroughly. He, throughout the book of Revelation, chooses to make purposeful grammatic errors in kind of a similar way as a poet would, like E.E. Cummings, you know, he would use um, adjectives as nouns and nouns as adjectives and lowercase everything instead of having complete sentences. It was purposeful because he's trying to convey something that's beautiful and you can't do that in an overly literal way because you lose something of the truth of it, right? I would, I imagine that's part of why John chose to write like this because I would have too. So he does this purposeful grammatical error and it's around the word from. Okay, okay, let me back up. There is a Greek translation of the Hebrew scripture that John would have had access to called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, in Exodus 3, the word from is like a particular Greek word 
So here, John uses that word from in the Greek letter that he's writing to these churches purposefully, even though it's grammatically incorrect. And the reason he's doing that is, of course, to point out that hyperlink in case anyone missed it. I'm using the language purposefully from Exodus 3. Also, this verse kind of reminds me of Hebrews 13, where it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this was common language for these intertestamental writers. So that explains why John is describing God as the one who was and is, because he's pulling that from Exodus 3. But what about the part where he is to come? That's kind of newer conceptually, right, as he's writing this letter. Well, interestingly enough, there are contemporary Greek writings that show the Greek god Zeus and other gods being called the gods that are for eternity. And there was this culturally known phrase, Zeus was, Zeus is, and Zeus shall be. That was a well-known, almost trope at the time, right? Because in the Greco-Roman world, tons of people acknowledged and worshipped these Greek gods. So Revelation's description of Yahweh as the God who was, is, and is to come is likely also a dig at Zeus and the other Greco-Roman false gods. Taking that language and clarifying that that's actually this Elohim is a way of kind of insulting and dismissing all those other popular notions about those other gods, right? So in this chapter and elsewhere in Revelation, we're taught that God is the one who was, is, and is to come, and that Jesus is the one who was, is, and is to come. Because John's like books, Revelation and the Gospel of John, have such high Christology, almost uncomparable, how many times they imply and flat out say, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. So number two, there's another phrase in Revelation 1. It's in verse 8. And I, it's also in 21.6 and 22.13, and I think elsewhere. And that is a description of God as Alpha and Omega, first and last, beginning and end. Personally, I'm not sure how somebody who existed before the beginning and will be the same in existence after the end can also be described as the beginning and the end, but apparently that's the case. So this alpha slash omega, beginning slash end, first slash last, God is being described throughout Revelation, and these are thought to be hyperlinks back to the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 41.4, 43.10, 44, 6, and 48, 12. Yes, I looked all those up and made sure I was right on those numbers because I'm not the most detail-oriented person. So if you want to read further, those are the verses. And I'm going to read you one of those. Isaiah 43, 10, just as an example of one of these hyperlinks, says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant who I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no other God was formed, nor will there be one after me. So there's a long-standing tradition of clarifying 
that Yahweh is the one that made all the other little G-gods, all the Elohim, all the spirit beings in existence, all the angelic realm, and any other thing that exists that may live forever, he was there first, and he is actually their creator. To further this claim that John is perpetually making that Jesus is Yahweh, let's read Revelation 1, 17 and 18 again. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I'm glad he said that first. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. So we're obviously talking about the second person of the Trinity, the one that died and rose, right? Jesus. And he says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. So here you have... Jesus claiming to be the Alpha Omega beginning and end, first and last. These were all claims that Yahweh made in the Hebrew scriptures. The audacity of, you know, any other Elohim claiming that unless they really, really are Yahweh, right? Okay, so Michael Heiser, who you may remember from the last episode, I've been pulling heavily from his studies of Revelation on the Naked Bible podcast. Go check it out. Michael Heiser says, quote, Yes, there are plural Elohim, but before God, there was no other. He has to create the other ones. He is the lone creator. He is the lone self-existent. Nothing else, even in the spiritual world, can claim these attributes, end quote. So both of these names for God that we've looked at, the first one being the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. And the second one being this Alpha Omega, beginning, end, first, last. Both of these are hyperlinks to Exodus 3 and to Isaiah 41, 43, 46, and 48. He's putting all of these claims together, mashing up all this Old Testament scripture into this poetic description of Jesus as the glorified eternal God. So, Why is John pulling all these Hebrew scripture references into his description of his vision that he had of Jesus? Well, besides insulting Zeus, John is probably motivated to present God as present in the ages past and present in the present time that he's writing the letter to the oppressed early church and present in the future eschatologically, the end times, the time of the day of the Lord and the the restoration and reconciliation of the globe and the kingdom where God's reign is established fully and eternally. He wants to pull that all together to remind the believers that he's writing to to stay encouraged because the Greco-Roman environment was really hostile to the growth of the early church, right? He wants to emphasize that Yahweh is the Lord over history Therefore, able to deliver the readers of this letter from their oppression, just like he delivered God's people from Egypt, from Babylonian captivity. This is the same God, right? He's bringing it all together into their present day circumstance. So to quote G.K. Beale from the New International Greek Textual Commentary on Revelation, he says, The last part of the threefold clause is to be understood eschatologically and as referring to God's sovereign consummation of history in the future. So 
I think it's very cool that John was thinking that deeply and intentionally about how he's presenting the Messiah in this first chapter and just his heart for the church, his pastoral heart for these churches that he's writing to, to take the time to write this well-informed, biblically rich, beautiful description of Christ as the deliverer forever. This chapter, chapter one of Revelation, has so many other hyperlinks to Hebrew scriptures in it. There's like no way I could dig into them all. John meshes two distinct persons of God, right? He the the God the Father and God the Son, he's meshing them together. Like from Daniel 7, when the ancient of days and the Son of Man were two distinct figures that were interacting with each other as with Daniel as a witness to it. Now John is meshing them together into one person, and that's Jesus, right? One character. John also brings in the menorah, the whole menorah branch thing from Zechariah 4 and other places in the Old Testament. These seven lamp stands on the menorah represent the sevenfold spirit of God or the seven angels of the church or the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, which is also those other things. Somehow people have different um, points of view on exactly what the sevenfold spirit is, but there's a lot of connection to the verses about God's eyes roaming the earth, looking for those who are faithful to him, that's connected to this menorah angelic presence as well. He also calls believers kingdom priests. We know that is in the Old Testament, right? In uh, Exodus 19.6, the nation is priests to the world, right? And now we as believers are priests to the world, ambassadors for, for our God. He describes the the way Jesus is described in Ezekiel 1, the figure on the throne in heaven in Ezekiel 1. He's pulling a lot of language from that in this chapter. He mentions that Jesus is holding a two-edged sword. That's the metaphorical sword of judgment, pronouncing judgment. That's in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 49. And then there's so many other spots from Daniel, like Daniel 8, Daniel 10, Daniel 12. They're all pulled in. And we learn that Jesus is the prince of the heavenly host, the commander of the Lord's army, right? The prince of all princes, in other words, the angel of the Lord, which is the Hebrew scriptures appearance of God in fleshly form, which happened multiple times in the Old Testament before the birth of Christ. In other words, Jesus showed up on earth in the form of a human multiple times before he was born and went through a whole human life. Those were theophastic like manifestations or what are they called? Christophy, I don't remember the word, but basically the angel of the Lord is Christ interacting in the human realm in the Old Testament. So John purposely pulls in those same descriptions from Daniel into Revelation 1 as well. So John's consistent view of Christ as the high preeminent eternal God who is matchless and who is all-powerful and who needs no help (laughs) is really beautiful throughout the book of Revelation. And it's cool to see how steeped in scripture John was. It also makes me think of Philippians 2, and I'll close with this. 
In Philippians 2, it tells us that our attitude should be the same as Christ, who being in very nature God. So all you internet theologians out there on TikTok saying that the Bible doesn't teach Jesus as God or Jesus never claimed that he was God, completely ridiculous. It's all, it's literally all over the <laughs> scriptures. I can't even deal with these people. I can't even take the time to reply to them because they're just so not familiar with how the Bible works. So anyway, he was in very nature God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to tightly. Instead, he humbled himself, becoming a person, a human person, and even obeying all the way to death on a cross. Well, then, of course, Christ is exalted by the Father and given the name, the name above every other name, the name that all will bow and confess, right? Bow before in the end of days when it's made obvious to everyone undeniably that Jesus is given the name. Well, what name is it? Is it Yeshua? That was a common name in the first century for Jewish people in the Middle East. It means Josh. Like, are we really thinking that it's the name Josh? No, it's the name Yahweh. Jesus was given the name above every other name. Jesus is Yahweh. So that's the kind of the point of the gospel. And we have to put those glasses on when we're reading Revelation to see the magnitude of this being that John's interacting with and fainting at the feet of. I think that this Jesus that carries the name Yahweh and reveals it to the world and holds the keys of eternal life and and death and uh, genuinely everything else in the spirit realm. I mean, he's just so worthy of our reverence. So... Let's end today's episode with a prayer of worship. Dear God, thank you for these revelations. Thank you for these explanations of of more of who you are. And of course, there's no end to the revealing of who you are. We know that we'll experience that throughout the rest of eternity and never exhaust the understanding. We'll never reach a point where we can fully comprehend you, but we will fall on our face like John did, and we will cry holy like the angelic beings that are around your throne. Each and every new revelation, our response, God, is just like awe and wonder that you are so full of light and so full of love and so amazing at being who you are. It's indescribable, but I love that we're called to be creative in how we try to describe who you are, how we try to share who you are. And I pray that that would be, yes, in our words and in our songs and in our conversations, in our books, in our content, in our social media posts, but also that we would embody that in our lives, that we would actually live more like you, become more like you as we apprentice under you, that Jesus, as we fall at your feet in awe and wonder and worship and holy fear, that you would transform us, touch us with your right hand, pick us up, face us, spend time with us, and and just pour your presence into us in a way that causes us to ultimately be transformed, become more like you. God, give us your mind, 
Give us the mind of Christ. Help us think the way you think. Help us see the world from up higher. Give us um, communion with you. Give us intimacy with you, God. Give us a best friendship with you that's unshakable by the world's trials and tribulations and the darkened arguments of the day. We pray, God, to see what John saw in the throne room of heaven. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we might die if we saw all that, so <laughs> answer according to your will. But God, give us more understanding of who you are. Give us a holy fear of you. Give us a reverence. Give us humility. Give us wisdom. Let us live what we were created to live, lives of worship to the one true holy God. Let us speak your name with nothing but reverence and awe in pure obedience, God, and faithfulness to you, come what may. And I pray these things in the powerful and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Across the world, your name is spoken. It is the hurting and the broken. Your mighty voice, nobody can deny. You are the Lord, your name unrivaled. We turn to you, give up our eyes. Shake in the dark